All right, you guys ready to get into the word? Are you ready to hear a message that will probably not be preached at any church in America this morning? Some of you are like, wait, wait, I don't know, what kind of church is this? Yeah, you'll find out, just hang out. No, we're talking, uh, well, first of all, you know, the last series that um, we preached was on modern life, and I talked about three seductions we have to watch as the church. I'm just going to hit them quick. Number one, how many of you are committed to living under the authority of Scripture and not letting culture tell you how the Bible needs to be changed? Amen? So we're going we're going to believe that what God says is true. You with me on that? Just say amen. Uh, okay, so God's smarter than culture, and then the mainstream media, God's smarter. Amen? You all agree on that one? How about this? We're not going to let the world put Jesus in a box. Jesus resists compartmentalization because he's Lord of everything and everyone, everywhere, at all times. He's scary in charge. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to follow anybody who isn't as scary and awesome as Jesus. So he's large and in charge, and he's in charge of everything, not just to what happens in your heart or what happens in church on Sunday. So if you live that way, you take Jesus out of the box and you realize he's Lord of all, ready for this, including government. Whoa, let that one sink in. All right, third point, how many of you have figured out it's really stupid to try to live the Christian life in the power of your natural ability and natural resources? And so we need to get back to believing that God is a supernatural God and that nothing is impossible for God and not rely on our own strength or what makes sense or what we think we can do, but let's believe God for things that we don't think we can do. Amen? So let's, let, let's unleash the, you know, we talked about letting out the roar this morning, you know. It was Charles Spurgeon who said the gospel doesn't need to be, uh, you know, guarded or protected. It needs to be let out of the cage. It's like a caged lion. You know, gee, we don't need to protect the Lord. We need to unleash him. Uh, from all of our human and religious expectations that we placed on God. So I challenge you last Sunday, man, let's, let's be faithful to the Lord and let's be fruitful in this time because the church is the key to the health of our nation. So don't get all hung up on what's going on out there. Let's let, make sure, you know, every, every Sunday morning we get a chance to come and love Jesus with all of our heart to make sure that it's real, to make sure we repent of any areas we need to repent of, make sure we're in alignment with God because we are the answer. We are the hope of the world and I'll try to make that case over the next few weeks. But I want to move now in this new series, which I've called Unalienable, America's Ongoing Fight for Liberty. And I want to talk about our duty and responsibility as believers to steward the incredible freedom and the incredible blessings that God has given to us. Now, I just want to say this, with with the secularization of our culture uh, and, and just the nastiness that we're seeing right now, has anybody seen a more nasty a political cycle than now. I mean, they, they're normally nasty, and everybody wants to vomit after the last political commercial, you know, attacking, and I, it's like you get assaulted with your TV, and there's nowhere you can go. Yard signs start springing up everywhere. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And now your pastor is going to tell you that we need to jump into that cesspool with all four feet. And some of you are going, no, 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 no. Why would I do that in my right mind? In fact, some of you have been taught the church has no business going near that cesspool. We have to make sure the gospel stays pure and unpolluted, all right? In fact, some of you have come from churches that major on disengagement, non-engagement, and that run from anything political, and I would say political means our life together. 
Anything political means our common life together. How many of you think Jesus wants to be a part of common life together? So some of you have even been raised, in fact, the secularists like to tell us, you people in the church, mind your own stinking business and stay out of anything in the public because you don't belong here, and they'll tell you that. Just try to be a Christian and run for public office sometime. (laughs) And you should see all the things that will pop up on your Facebook feed, all right? So we're toxic, we're polarized, the political environment is nasty, and here's the other thing I'm going to run into today. We run into usually two common problems, two extremes on the engagement piece, all right? Like, should the church be engaged in in public policy? I'm trying to answer that question this morning. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, the devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is worse. You see why, of course, he relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. That's so good, isn't it? So if the devil can get you hating this particular position over here, usually what happens is you react by swinging over to the other equally wrong side. And Martin Luther said it this way. He said, human nature is like a drunkard trying to ride a horse. The drunkard sits on the saddle and starts moving forward and he falls off on the left-hand side only to climb back up on the horse and he's working so hard not to fall off on the left that he falls off on the right. And that's usually how human history goes. We either fall off on the one side or we fall off on the other side. And my goal this morning is to try to get us to stay on the horse, all right? Because I I believe that this horse is an important horse to ride. And let me break it up into two uh, little straw men this morning, all right? Uh, two, two opposing camps in the church. I call this one tongue-in-cheek, the Christian jihadist church, <laughs> all right? Now, we've probably been accused of being the Christian jihadist church, but I just want to tell you, innocent, we are not the jihadist church. Well, pastor, what is a Christian jihadist church? That's this false characterization that the church somehow, if we get involved in speaking about our public life, about public policy, about voting, if we have voter registration in our lobby, we're one of those churches that has become politicized. And in becoming politicized, we become uh, aligned with one party or the other, and we're trying to take over the planet and turn America into a theocracy. How many of you have heard that? I mean, that has been said about me, you know, and, I, and I've told people here, because the great commandment and the great commission both tell us to take dominion and occupy our little secret, we are trying to take over planet Earth. This church is about global conquest, just to let the secret out. Shh. But we're not doing it through political means, we're doing it through the kingdom of God. We're doing it through a superior worldview, which leads to a better life. I'm going to say that again. A superior worldview with better ideas, which leads to better lives. So the people go, I want that. But it's not with swords or jihad or compulsion or anything like that. Folks in this camp are often accused of saying, you know, if we can just get the right person elected, then everything will end up just fine and America will live happily ever after and everything will be great. Well, how many of you know we're not supposed to make an idol out of politics? And no person is going to turn America into, you know, the promised land and we're going to live happily ever after. That, that no election will solve that. We all get that. But sometimes we're accused of that just because you're involved in that kind of thing. Now let me compare this with a church that I know most of you are very familiar with because it's kind of the common church approach right now in America. I call it the evangelized, not politicized church. 
Now this church, here's the approach that they take. We're just going to preach the gospel. We're going to make disciples. And the rest will basically take care of itself. We don't need to get involved in the messy business of government or politics. Let's just preach Jesus, Jesus only. And, and so here's what happens. We're going to teach you in these kind of churches. We're going to pray for government. But we're going to preach expositionally through the Bible, and we're just going to cover the issues as they come up. Now, let me just say this. I love preaching expositionally through the Bible. There's nothing the matter with that. But how many of you know if it's a national election and your expositional preaching is in the book of Exodus and you're talking about the tabernacle of Moses, you might not be relevant at the time. Now, there's nothing the matter with the tabernacle of Moses, but we have like a national election going on with humongous consequences. So you might want to get out of Exodus at least for a week and talk about something that is relevant to everybody. And can I just tell you something? I was a youth pastor for 12 years. Young people are smart. I'm looking. There's some smart young people. Right? I see that right there. Some smart young people. Yep. I see a lot of smart young people. Yep. Leishy, I pointed at you. Just so you know. I could get my daughter in that smart young people crowd. Smart young people. This is what I noticed. When we preach a gospel that does not connect with real life, like if you turn on a news cycle right now, you know what you're going to hear? There's an election. And you know why you're going to hear so much of it? Because there's a lot at stake. Because it matters. And you know what young people do? They watch that and they go, hmm, there's a lot of talk about this election. They're spending millions and millions and gazillions of dollars. How come my church doesn't talk about it? And you know what they say about Jesus and church? It's irrelevant. And then they check out because our, our real life does not connect the Bible with real life. Let me tell you something else. Pastors are, are great at this compartmentalization of the Bible. And I'll, I'll, I'll get to my next point here in just a minute. That, hold on to that thought because I'm getting ahead. I'm getting ahead of myself. Someone said to me one time, Pastor Ron, don't you think if you preach about these issues, you might offend somebody? <laughs> Seriously? Can, can I just remind you people, that uh, my precious friends, people here, that the reason we've come up with this little line that says, um, stay away from politics and religion is because there are no more ultimate things than politics and religion. Like, I could preach about SpongeBob this morning, <laughs> and nobody would get upset about SpongeBob SquarePants. At least I don't think. Some of you might not like SpongeBob, but I mean, everybody else would be like, hey. But you know what? Who cares? The reason that people's blood pressure starts to rise and they get a little anxious when we talk about religion is because don't you think eternity and heaven and hell and if the Bible's true and Jesus like nailed to a cross and shed his blood and rose from the dead, if he went through all that, like there's probably something, that's probably a, a, a guide to pointing us to something really big that's going on there that we might want to pay attention to. What do you all think? But, but isn't talking about heaven and hell, doesn't that make some people uncomfortable? But wouldn't you rather make people uncomfortable with truth that might save them than avoid it altogether? You know, John Calvin said, you know, in the local church, he said, a pastor will be able to speak into the lives of people that willingly and freely come to worship at the congregation, like you guys are doing. I, I can speak into your life this morning. But how do you know the governor touches all of our lives, whether we like it or not? Wouldn't it be great to have a governor that shared our values? Wouldn't it be great to have a governor that loved Jesus and was full of the Holy Spirit and believed the Bible? I mean, these are not just wishful thoughts. We should be working towards that because that person is going to impact 
All of us. How many know presidential election impacts all of us? So how can we sit in church and just act like it doesn't matter? I'll tell you, to the degree that we do, we lose the next generation because they know it does matter, and why aren't we talking about it in church? That's the problem. Now this is what else disturbs me, is when you think about the typical role of the pastor in public life, what is that role? Let me tell you what it is. We have become professional chicken blessers. Say, well, pastor, elaborate. I think I will. If we do anything in public, if there's people that still have a little bit of the fear of God, they'll say, Pastor Ron, would you offer the blessing? Sure. Lord, bless this chicken we're about to eat. Amen. Thank you, pastor. Now go be seated. Eat your chicken. And mind your own business because we're getting ready to handle public business and it's really important and you need to keep your faith to yourself. Most pastors are content with being public chicken blessers. I think it's an insult. And I think it's a disgrace from whence we've come because pastors of old were not chicken blessers. So I just want you to know, the last time I was called to bless a chicken, I went for it. I still remember it. It was the Chamber of Commerce gathering at the beautiful grand, you know, courthouse down here. It was December. The snow was coming down. I was so inspired. And I just, I just said, thank you, Jesus, that you, sent your, that you came. You died on the cross for our sins. And Lord, even as this snow is blanketing the ground, covering the ground with beautiful white snow, that your grace, your mercy, your shed blood covers all of our sin and we can be free. Bless the chicken. Amen. <laughs> A hush came over the whole place. But you know what, I just decided I am not going to let the world squeeze me into a professional chicken blesser mode. I think we have a little bit more to offer than that. And I think the gospel is much better news than that. So I would like to talk a little bit about the historic role of pastors in public policy. And I think it's a third approach that hopefully will allow us to stay on the horse and move forward. Now, as I've talked with pastors across the state, I have found that they're not like preachers of old, because preachers of old possessed what I call a comprehensive Christianity. They did not preach the gospel of salvation only, they preached the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I need to highlight this for a moment. Jesus did not preach the gospel of salvation. Some of you are going, Pastor, you're a heretic. Jesus came to die for our sins. Listen to me. Look at the Bible and see what the Bible says. The early church preached the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is broader than just salvation. Salvation is part of the kingdom. You can't enter the kingdom apart from receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But the kingdom is broader. And most of us have been raised in a church uh, context where the focus is on repent of your sins, ask Jesus in your heart, and someday you're going to go spend eternity with him. How many of you know that's good news? But that's like the first step of Christianity. And some, some of you have been to churches where every single week, that's the message, salvation. And you're like, I've been saved 20 years, and I already know that. Like, who's discipling me and teaching me? You know, I'd like to say this. If, if that were the, the whole message, then what I would recommend we do is we preach the gospel, we let people get saved, 
and then we put them in the electric chair and we send them home. That way you're already going. You will not backslide. And since we have nothing else to offer this world, we might as well check out sooner than later. We could have, we could have, you know, we could euthanize people. We could go, hey, you got saved? Come with me. Let's go meet Jesus right now. And, uh, and we won't have to worry about following up on anybody that lost their salvation or backslid or whatever your theological interpretation is. Everybody will just go straight into the arms of Jesus. But how many of you know that's not the gospel of the kingdom? You ready for this? Jesus is Lord of all. He is Lord over every aspect of our lives. And guess who created government? Who's the king of kings and lord of lords? Whose governments are, the, are on his shoulders? Jesus! And we need to mess up the political arena by reminding them that. Because politicians have a nasty habit of forgetting that they're under the authority and lordship of Jesus in their function and in their service to us. That's a nasty little idea. Look at what B.F. Morris, the historian, wrote about the early pastors. The ministers of the revolution were like their Puritan predecessors, bold and fearless in the cause of their country. No class of men contributed more to carry forward the revolution and achieve our independence than did the ministers. By their prayers, their patriotic sermons and services, they rendered the highest assistance to the civil government, the army, and the country. Did you hear how pastors were described? Bold and fearless. Where are those people? Where are the bold and fearless pastors? Most pastors won't touch these issues with a 10-foot pole. How about John Murray, the great pastor theologian? He said this, when laws are proposed or enacted that are contrary to the Word of God. How many of you know we have some of those? It is the duty. Everybody say duty. duty. The duty of the church in proclamation and in pro official pronouncement to oppose and condemn them. Can I ask you, where does that happen? It happens in the pulpit on Sunday morning, among other places, but it certainly happens in church. When wickedness is being pushed forth by our government, it is the duty of your pastor to scream the loudest on Sunday mornings and to awaken the sheep and say, we got problem. This is the last bastion of liberty in our nation. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Our job is to scream the loudest. And look at what it goes on to say. It is a misconception of what is involved in the I'm sorry, it is misconception of what is involved in the proclamation of the whole counsel of God to suppose or plead that the church has no concern with the political sphere. The church is concerned with every sphere and is obligated to proclaim and inculcate the revealed will of God as it bears upon every department of life. Did you just hear that? Jesus is Lord of every part of your life. It's the church's job to tell you what he thinks about every part of your life. Why? So that we can put that into our hearts so that people in this congregation that are called to public service will understand the biblical authority and responsibility that God has entrusted them with as, as public servants. 
Our job is not to be government, just to be clear. We're not the government. We're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But how many of you know the institutional separation of family and church and state? Those are three separate institutions, but over all of them is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Governments are still accountable to Christ, whether they know it or not. Whether they're American governments or Iranian governments or Chinese governments, God has the audacity to suggest he is Lord over all and men have a duty everywhere at all times uh, in all of history to honor and obey him. God actually believes that. It'd be great if the church believed that. We get in some really good trouble if we start preaching that message publicly. How many of you know government touches every aspect of our lives together? And here's the biggest problem. If the church will not speak to the issues of our time, we become culturally irrelevant. So many of these woke pastors today, man, I want to be relevant. I want to be relevant. So I'm going to give you three steps to dealing with anxiety. Why don't we deal with the lousy government we have that's creating the anxiety in the first place? Instead of giving Prozac messages that help people feel better, why don't we deal with real issues that lead to real problems or real blessing, depending on who's in charge? Secondly, not only did they have a comprehensive Christianity, but it actually led to a culturally engaged congregation, and ready for this, a prophetic pulpit. Pastor, what do you mean by a prophetic pulpit? Well, John Adams, one of our founding fathers, our second president, said this, The Philadelphia ministers thunder and lighten. That must be a good old Philadelphia way of saying it. Thunder and lighten every Sabbath. In other words, uh, they were preaching against George III's despotism. Where were these messages happening? Church. Who were they preaching against? A government official. Who was calling them out? The pastor. Where was this happening? on the Sabbath. Why were they doing this? Because they did not have a compartmentalized, narrow view of the gospel. They had a comprehensive view of the gospel that actually believed that the gospel mattered in public life. And the pulpits were thundering with the truth of God's word. Look at this next quote from Thomas Jefferson. Certainly one of the least religious of the founders, but look at Thomas Jefferson. He was at church on Sunday, just so you know. He was a founding father, our third president. Pulpit oratory ran like a shock of electricity through the whole colony. He was talking about the colony of Virginia at the time. The pulpits were sending electrical shock through the colony because they were preaching the word backed by the Holy Spirit. Guys are getting really quiet in here. Let me ask you this question. When's the last time you left and you said, Pastor was preaching like electricity was going through the place. It was shocking. Guess what? It was the pulpits that were leading the way in the founding of this nation. And I will make a bold statement here, but it's absolutely true. If it hadn't been for the church, there would be no America. We'd still be saying, God save the king, all right? Uh, There would be no United States of America if it were not for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and more in particular, for the pastors, Historian Frank Moore says this, the preachers of the revolution did not hesitate to attack the great social and political evils of their day. I want you to look at that word attack because I want to highlight something here. The church is not called to attack people. Can I get an amen on that? And I want to show you the fine line that pastors must walk, but that we, as I said, must walk, all right? 
Let's take a social evil like abortion. Whenever I talk about abortion at church, which by the way, if the church doesn't talk about this issue, where are we going to hear God's heart? On the evening news? No. From a political party? No. So where are we going to hear God's heart? It has to happen in the church. I realize every time I open my mouth, I'm talking to people in the church who have been personally impacted by this who are still getting healed, who are still uh, maybe feeling the devastation of, of choices that were made before. Uh, every time we do encounters, we see people that, that deal with these issues. So let me just say this. Jesus, praise God for forgiveness, for healing, for grace. This is a place where we love broken people because Jesus loves broken people. Amen? So we're not pointing fingers or condemning, but here's the other side of this. Truth has to be paired with grace. And I don't know about you, but if we don't deal with the root, we keep having to deal with the fruit. So if you love people, you want to find the biggest acts you can find. And, and hear me, we don't attack people, but I want you to hear this. We violently attack ideas. I, want to, I use that word on purpose violently attack ideas. I'm not talking about physical violence. I'm saying when there are wicked ideas that go against God's truth, we should violently go after those things, pull them down, resurrect the truth of God in our culture and declare his goodness because it's the truth that sets people free. So while we love people, hear me, you need to be a part of a prophetic church that hates wickedness. And for my children and for my children's children, for your children, for your grandchildren, there are certain things going on in our culture today that we should be violently opposing, not sitting in church and just pretending that they're somehow going to go away if we have enough Bible studies. It's not going to solve the problem. You don't just sit in your, with your friends in a Bible study and think it's all going to go away. Somebody's got to get engaged out there where the battle's being fought. And we should be praying and supporting and raising up godly people that have that call on their lives. Can I just say this too? When pastors say, no, we're not going to be political at our church, you have just become political. Because what you're saying is, you know what? I'm content with the status quo. I'm good with it. And I'm just telling you, as long as evil, I mean, you know, but until Jesus comes, we, should, we are constantly reforming. Because it's the status quo is not the way it should be until Christ comes. There's always going to be work to do. You with me? Always going to be work to do. So when I stand up here, and let me just say this. I, I, when pastors do this, do I really preach that message? Because I know that guy's probably not going to like it. She's not going to like it. That family might leave the church. Right now, the budget's a little tight. Not sure if I'm risking preaching on that topic because half the church might leave. And what would that do to the budget? because they take their ties with them. How many of you know, as soon as pastors start becoming pulpit politicians and prostitutes, instead of preaching the word, then we have just fallen into the belief that somehow you're the ones that support the church and that Jesus isn't big enough to support his own church. So when the interviewer said to me, well, pastor, aren't you afraid you might offend somebody? I said, offend somebody the gospel is offensive to all of us join get in line if the gospel hasn't offended you for crying we're sinners if the gospel doesn't offend you you're at the wrong church you're at the wrong stinking church you're being lied to you're being getting cotton candy sermons every sunday and you leave feeling woo i feel so good woo 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 and when when's the last time you felt convicted about something when's the last time the holy spirit did a divine adjustment in your life 
I told this interview, I hope the person got offended because they heard the truth about where that candidate stands on this issue, which is wicked and hurting people, and I hope that they were confronted with their wrong belief about a candidate. That's what I hope. And if they got offended, good, maybe they'll come back. Maybe they stirred something up in their heart, but I'll tell you what, we're not going to be political, we're going to be biblical. We're going to talk about the issues from a clear biblical perspective. You know, during the 19th century, there were churches that refused to denounce slavery in America. Was that okay with God? No, it was political cowardice is what it was. There were churches who continue to fail to speak about the evils of abortion today. Is that being political? No, you're not being biblical. You're not speaking against the issues of our day. What about the German church's accommodation to the Nazis and the complete rolling over of the church during Hitler's reign and all the people that lost their lives because the church didn't want to be political? You know the story of where the congregation simply sang louder when the trains full of Jews were going off to the concentration camp screaming and crying out for help. The church just sang louder because they didn't want to be disturbed hearing the screams of people that were going off to their death. God forbid that we don't have our prophetic voice and we speak out on behalf of those who cannot speak out for themselves. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this. It's probably my favorite quote as it relates to the church. He said, the church must be reminded that it's not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state. And this last part has just convicted me so much and be a part of who I am it says if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority I just say this prophetically God forbid that we become an irrelevant social club while the world goes to hell while we get disengaged from the culture and while we pretend like we're we're preserving the purity of the gospel while culture goes to hell it's the gospel that changes the culture it's the gospel that brings light to the culture it's the gospel that carries the power for transformation of the culture let me wrap up quickly here john witherspoon one of the Founding fathers and signers of the Declaration of Independence, the only pastor to sign. He said this, government exists for the glory of God and for the good of the people. Say that with me. Government exists for the glory of God and the good of the people. Isn't that good? Government exists for the glory of God because government belongs to God. He created it. It's his idea. Romans chapter 13, we all know that. Government officials are his ministers. They're his servants. Government exists for a God-ordained purpose. He should get the glory from government. Can I get an amen out of that? That's just the facts. Government exists for the glory of God. So our absence, point number one, our absence from public life robs God of his glory. Anybody follow that with me? If government exists for his glory, but the church won't get involved because it's messy or nasty or toxic, then guess what? You just rob God of the glory that's due his name because you won't engage the way he wants you to engage. Government, our absence from public policy robs God of his glory. Point number two, very quickly, our absence robs the community of God's goodness and his blessing. In short, we fail to love our neighbors. Now, you've heard it preached in pulpits across America that the most loving thing you can do in this season of your life is to be quarantined and to stay at home. Don't leave. But the sad thing is you've also been told to quarantine your faith at home. 
Your faith is not welcome in public. Your faith is not welcome in public schools, public universities, public government, uh, public anything. Keep your faith at home. Have you ever thought of it this way? How many of you really believe the gospel brings blessings to people's lives? I mean, I believe that with all. I believe we have a superior worldview that leads to a John 10.10 life, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes to give us life and life more abundantly. How many of you believe that? Everywhere the gospel goes, people get lifted up. How many even believe God is smarter than Dr. Ruth about sex? All right, good. Some of you are a little shaky on that one. I'm trying to... God created it. God knows the best way to express it. God knows the proper boundaries for maximum blessing. Anybody say amen to that? And so even in our culture today that has absolutely thrown the Bible and God's truth under the bus on sexual ethics, when we declare as old-fashioned as we sound that, that you know what? If you do it God's way, you experience the greatest blessing. We shouldn't be ashamed about saying these things. Everywhere the gospel goes, ready for this? It blesses people. So how can you say you love your neighbor, but you're going to a church that's so pure that you don't want to defile the gospel, that you don't want to politicize the gospel, when politics is all about our life together, and your job is to bless your neighbor? How do you do that if you don't get engaged with what's going on? It's kind of hard, isn't it? I'm trying to tell you that withdrawal is not a way of blessing your neighbor. You have to face what's going on. You have to bring the gospel. And, and here's the shift that needs to happen. Well, you Christians are trying to impose your views on us. Nope, I'm trying to bless you. I am working so hard to bless you. And how many of you know we don't impose our views with a sword? We impose our views with a superior worldview and better fruit. One of my greatest memories was when we got to be interviewed on a national sh a show years back, Cynthia McFadden, and talk about purity. And of course, they thought, you know, we were just wacko when we talked about purity. But this is what we kept telling Cynthia McFadden. Cynthia, the proof is in the pudding. Cynthia, the proof is in the pudding. Come back, see us. The proof is in the pudding. What, what I tried to say with her over and over again is, you know what? Truth lived out is undeniable. And you can see the results of a truth-filled life. And you can see the blessing of the gospel on people. And what I want people to be, do is be able to look at my marriage and look at my family and go, how do I get that? Not that I'm shoving it down their throat, but that I'm living and moving in culture and people are going, look at that family, look at that church, look at the way they love, look at the culture when you come there. I feel, man, I've never felt so loved in my life. Ding, 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 ding. You know, when I ran for state rep, I had the privilege at the time of Senator Richard Luger, who was up for a Nobel Peace Prize. He came to my house to stump for me. This was un unbelievable. Talk about the favor of God. You know what? My dad and my mom, this is a political event. Pe people aren't all huggy at political events. Some of you know what I'm talking. They're not all huggy. They're not big huggers. You know, hey, praise the Lord. Good to see you. No, that's not how it usually goes. My mom and dad stood at our front door and hugged every political person in Lake County that came through the door that night. And this is what people said. I've never really been a part of a campaign like this. Um, I remember sitting in a smoke-filled room where everybody was drinking, and my wife tugs on my sleeve, and she says, can I say something? And I'm like, I don't know. I've never run for office before. I get, and I, so I went to the leader, and I said, uh, 
Can my wife say something? He's like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. My wife stands up unsolicited. How I many you know most, or most politicians can't get their wife to show up at their own event or even at their parade? My wife's tugging on my arm. She wants to speak. She stands up, smoke-filled room. Everybody's got their beers. And she says, I just want you to know. And she goes on this unsolicited Holy Spirit endorsement of me. I just want you to know that the man you see right here is the same man at home. And he has loved me. And he has loved our children. And he is a man of integrity. And he will do what he said. And on and on and on. I'm standing there. I'm kind of like shrinking. you know. (laughs) And then she sits down. And it was like an atomic Holy Spirit bomb went off in the room. The guy didn't know what to do. He stands up, picks up his beer, and he's like, uh, uh, yeah, that was really great. Did you pay her five bucks to say that? Oh, you didn't know what to say. I said, uh, no, sir, it's better than that. She actually believes that. I didn't have to pay her anything for that. Let me end with this. My goodness, I need to shoot that clock. It's killing me. (laughs) Third thing, our absence demonstrates a failure to steward the freedom and the blessings that we've been given. Can I just remind you, um, we're the only people on the entire globe who get to live under a government that we actually created. Everybody else inherited their governments. We created ours. And how many of you know we're in a constitutional republic, not a democracy, so the powers flow out of the people the liberties flow out of the people which means if your mouth is shut you just failed to exercise your responsibility so you know what we do voter registration here you know why because it's really important and it's i believe a holy activity to go vote it is a privilege and a duty to vote so we do voter registration right here we will provide voter guides because how in the world can you pray for godly government and vote for godly government if you don't know where people stand on issues So we help with voter guides. At church, absolutely. When we have godly candidates who are running for office, who are right on the issues, I will introduce you to them. Why? Because I want you to vote for them. Why? Because I care about godly government. In church, if they could talk about King George III in church, we can talk about government in our church. I don't care what the IRS says, to the contrary. Uh, And we should be. How about this? I didn't know this. Do you know that the President of the United States is responsible for about 4,000 political appointees, most of whom you will never hear about them or know who they are? Whoever leads our nation has tremendous responsibility to appoint all kinds of people in important positions. Okay? 4,000. All right? Let me tell you this, too. Even though the mainstream media constantly attacks our country about how bad we are. We are the leader of the world. And I'll tell you this, I have been to probably 50 different nations of the world, all right? And I notice one thing about all the nations of the world. They are more engaged with what's happening governmentally and politically in America than most Christians in America are. And let me tell you why. They feel the, the impact of bad leadership in America. How about this? Anybody care about missionaries overseas? Do you know that when we have leaders who don't care about religious liberty or who attack our religious liberties, do you know what happens to missionaries and Christians overseas? They bear the, the, the sword of wicked governments who feel empowered because they know America will not do anything about it. 
This is the ripple effect of our disengagement. When Also, when we have righteousness in office, we're able to promote righteousness abroad. So our election impacts the world, just to put things in perspective. It certainly impacts you and I, but it impacts the world. And I don't know about you, but I just want to do my little part right here to impact the world. I want my missionary friends who are saying, this is what they say, Pastor, if America goes down, where else is there for freedom and liberty? Where else is there? If we lose America, where else do we go? I don't have an answer for that because they're right. So while we're not going to worship the government, we're also not going to just keep having Bible studies and pretend that it's all going to work its way out out there while we pretend like we're keeping the gospel pure and undefiled. No, we're going to take the middle road. We're not going to be the drunk that falls off to the right or to the left. We're going to take the middle road of engagement and we're going to do everything that we can to see good people in office and to be the conscience of the state and to be the, pro- the prophetic voice. Come, I mean, you know, it's not just this prophetic pulpit. You are a prophetic pulpit. Your life is a prophetic pulpit. You go out to work every day. What are you talking about at the, at the cooler when people are talking about issues? What are you talking about? How, do you, how are you presenting Jesus? How are you connecting the dots between the Word of God and Scripture and the issues of our day? Because you know what? My job is to help you do that. Your job is to do it. And then you get in trouble, and then you get to run back here, and then we get to rally around you. That's the way this thing's supposed to work. <laughs> so I give you all the scripts from the Bible. You read them. Get them in your heart. Yes, get full of the Holy Spirit. You take the electricity out there. You get in trouble. You get persecuted. You come back here. We help you. And that's the way it goes till Jesus comes. Jesus backs up his church. Revival happens. Reformation happens. They're writing about us in history books. Come on, this is what I'm talking about. Let's, let's get a vision to be a part of a solution in our culture right now. I'm going to end with this quote, one of my favorite quotes from J. Gresham Mockham, one of the big fighters against liberalism in his day. Listen to what he says. You can avoid the debate over the difficult issues of the day if you choose. You need only drift with the current and trendy themes. Preach the easy and popular themes. And these great questions will probably never trouble you. Many preachers are avoiding them, and many preachers are preaching to the air. The church is waiting for men of another type. Oh, I love that quote. The church is waiting for men of another type. I just want to tell you, let's be, for all the men in here, let's be one of those kind of men, amen? Not guys that are looking to avoid the hard things or failing to speak on the difficult things, but let's be men of courage. Let's lead our families with courage. Um, I remember hearing from some of the families in here, I don't want to raise my children in a church that's full of fear and hysteria. I want to be a part of a church that fights back, a church that pushes back. These are the things that I'm hearing from God's people. I'm telling you, it's just time for us to be that kind of church, time to speak with that kind of authority. Let's move beyond the chicken blessing and let's get into actually blessing the world for which Jesus came to save. Amen. Stand to your feet. I won't pray with you this morning. (laughs) Hallelujah. Marriage class at 4 o'clock today. Father, we just present ourselves to you right now in the light of all that's going on. I just pray that that prophetic anointing would fall on living stones. I pray for great lovers of you, great lovers of people, and great lovers of America. There's nothing wrong with loving your nation and doing everything you can to be a blessing to your nation. 
I just pray for a holy sense of God-centered patriotism where we would love our country and love, love what we stand for and also want to be a part of ongoing change and reformation where there's injustice or where there's wickedness that we could be a part of the answer, Lord. So Father, help us to be a picture to a lost world of the superiority of the gospel and the blessings that Jesus brings to every dimension of our lives. Lord, we believe your word when you said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And so, Father, we just ask you for a reformation and a revival in American government in this day and hour. Father, help us to see change locally, across our state, and across our nation. And God will give you the glory and the honor for it. Bless our people now as we head on out to our mission field. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.